Hey, what's up, podcasters? This is Dave Clayton here with Ethos Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And I want to take just a moment to remind you that there are some changes that are going on with our podcast. As our online family continues to grow, we found that it's sometimes challenging to find the teachings that you're looking for. And so just a reminder that we have broken our podcast into three unique podcasts. And so this podcast that you're listening to will continue to be the podcast for our Cannery family in downtown Nashville. But if you want to find specific teachings from Ethos Church Marathon or Ethos Church Hillsborough Village, you can search for both of those in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or you can find all of our teachings online at ethoschurch.org forward slash grow. So glad that you join in with us each week. You open up the Word of God, and I hope you enjoy this teaching from God's Word. Uh, several years ago, uh, one of my good friends and kind of a mentor for several years, he, he, he reached out to me and he said, Dave, I just emailed you a podcast that you've got to listen to. It's, it's uh, an interview with what is one of the most interesting human beings I've ever listened to. He was not in the Dose of Key commercial, spoiler alert. He's like one of the most fascinating guys like you have ever heard. His, name's, his name is Miles Hilton Barber. And he said, I, I want you to listen to this podcast, listen to this interview. It will shape you profoundly. And before you spend the next 30 minutes Googling it, I'll post it online so you can listen to this podcast sometime uh, later. But I'm just curious, raise your hand. Have any of you ever even heard of Miles Hilton Barber? I've never heard of him. Anybody? I'm just curious. Okay. So I, I never heard of Miles. This is a picture of Miles. Uh, he, he's a 70-year-old guy. He was born in Zimbabwe. He's got one of the most fascinating stories. For the first 18 years of his life, he wanted desperately to be a fighter pilot in the Rhodesian army because his dad was a decorated fi fighter pilot. That was like the longing of his life that he's gonna be a fighter pilot. So when he's 18 years old, he went to enlist. He went to, to kind of go through all of the screenings so he could become a fighter pilot. And uh, there on his 18th birthday, they looked at him and they said, hey, we hate to give you the bad news, but your eyesight is failing. You will never fly a plane. And he's so, so discouraged, so frustrated. So he kind of leaves that moment. His, his dream had just been dampened or, 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 or destroyed, however you would say it. He was really discouraged. And then over the next couple of years, it just begins to get worse because all of a sudden, he begins to notice that his eyesight was beginning to get worse and worse and worse. He had a brother who's a couple of years older who during this same window of time, his eyesight started getting worse and worse and worse. And so they went to the doctor. They thought, man, this is, this is crazy what's going on. And they both discovered that two brothers had this rare genetic disease that was gonna lead them both to be completely blind in their early 20s. In the podcast, Miles tells this story on his 21st birthday. Right before his 21st birthday, he goes completely blind and his best friend takes him out, sits him down at a restaurant and says, bro, I cannot imagine a worse fate to be struck on any human being in the world than to be blind. The least I can do is buy you a beer. And I'm like, I don't know if your friends have the gift of encouragement like that, but I'm like, <laughs> how depressing. Like, think back to your 21st birthday or think forward to it. Like, that's not what you picture. But here he was sitting, drinking a beer as a blind man in Zimbabwe with a friend that did not know how to encourage him very well. And he tells the story. It goes on the next couple of years. He marries a wonderful woman. They moved to London because there were more opportunities for blind people in London. And for the next 30 years, for the next 30 years, he lived basically as a recluse in London. He would sit in his apartment until his wife or children would kind of come home. He'd tell the story of being too scared to travel the 100 yards from his apartment to the little market at the end of the street because he was scared he'd get lost or to make a fool of himself. And so for 30 years, he lived as a victim of his circumstances. 
Right before he turned 50, his brother, who had also been blind for 30 years and had been living as recluse, just got so frustrated by his situation. And so his brother, who was also blind, he was living in Durban, South Africa at this point. He decides for whatever reason that he's gonna build a boat in his backyard. I don't know if you'd read the story of Noah. He got inspired, something happened. So this blind guy, true story, goes out and builds a boat in his backyard in Durban, South Africa. It takes a couple of years. I could barely finish my kids' derby cars and I have good eyesight. Like, so how he was cutting boards and putting, I have no idea. But he, he builds this boat, and when he gets done building this boat, he decides he wants to figure out if it can sail. And so he puts it in the water, and it can sail, and then he decides, man, if it can sail, I wonder how far it can sail. And his brother, this guy on the screen, his brother decides after the age of 50 that he, this blind man, is gonna sail this boat from Durban, South Africa to Sydney, Australia by himself. And he becomes the first blind guy to ever cross the ocean uh, which makes a lot of sense to me, like, you know, uh, on his own in a boat that he had built. And so he lands in Sydney, Australia, and the first phone call he makes, can you guess who he called? His brother. And he said, bro, <laughs> paraphrase. <laughs> he said, bro, he said, listen, you got to get out of your apartment. I just built a boat and I sailed across the ocean. What do you got? And Miles said something in the podcast, it's fascinating, he said something just shifted in him and he said, man, there's this dream that's been laying dormant under the, under the weight of my circumstances. He says, I'm gonna learn how to fly a plane. And so he spent the next four years figuring out could he develop instruments that would help him fly by sound instead of by sight. And he became the first blind pilot, shocker, to fly from London to Sydney, Australia because he wanted to outdo his brother. And he lands and he thought, man, if, if, I could do that, if I could do that, what else could I do? And he decides he's gonna become the first blind guy to take a dog sled across Antarctica, and he does. He climbs Mount Kilimanjaro. He breaks a land speed record, true story, drag racing a car. I have no idea how that happened, but he did it. Like, drove a car, broke a land speed record. One of my favorite stories is he decided that he was gonna start running these extreme marathons to raise uh, money for uh, research for kids that had been affected by the disease that he was. And so he runs this ultra marathon through the Sahara Desert, 150 miles. It's such an extreme race that when you show up for the race, you have to bring your own casket because so many, many people die, they wanna just put your body in it and ship it home. And this is the sort of things that this man is doing. Now, I don't know how you feel about your life today, but man, when I was listening to this podcast, I'm like, I'm a loser. Like, I'm, like, uh, I'm the most. Uh, all of this, not just after the age of 50, but after the age of 50 as a blind guy. And here's what struck me as I was listening to him tell his stories, and he's just kind of walking through all of it. He said, there was this moment where I got that phone call from my brother, and I understood that the biggest challenges I was facing was not what was going on outside of me, but what was happening inside of me. The greatest challenge was not my circumstances, it was my perspective. And in a moment, all of a sudden, problems became possibilities, obstacles became opportunities, setbacks became setups. And he realized, man, the only thing that's keeping me from stepping into what God has made me for is not a change of circumstance, but a change of perspective. And he said, I wanted to quit living as a victim and start living from this place of victory. And I, was, I remember listening to that podcast years ago, I thought, man, all throughout it, I just, I just hear 
these traces of the gospel because this is what Jesus says. Remember in Jesus' first recorded sermon in Mark chapter one, he shows up and he looks at a group of people that were under the imprisonment of the Roman Empire. Their circumstances were absolutely terrible and Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, despite your circumstances, the kingdom of heaven is so close you can reach out and touch it. He says, but the only way you step into the kingdom of heaven is not if your circumstances shift, but if your perspective shifts. Jesus uses this word in the original language, the word metanoia. It's the word that's often translated to repent. What it literally means is to have a change of perspective, a change of mind. Jesus says, the life you've always wanted is yours for the taking, but the only way you get from here to there is not when your circumstances shift, but when your perspective shifts. So what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember all of the crowds around him and he starts by saying, blessed are those who are rich and retire early. Is that how the Sermon on the Mount goes? Few of you have read your Bible, you got the joke, the rest of you are like looking it up quickly. Like, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says, blessed are those who mourn. Wait, what? <laughs> blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are struggling. Wait, what? Blessed are those who are persecuted. <laughs> Jesus says, let me give you a different perspective on what you're facing. So what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't let your mind be conformed to the patterns of the world. Romans chapter 12, verse two, but be transformed by what? Be transformed by the renewal of your, help me out church, of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now I want you to hear me very clearly. Here's Here's the difference between self-help and gospel help. Self-help says, change your frame of mind and then your circumstances will adjust. That's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Sometimes it's true, but it's not always true. Gospel help is very different. Gospel help says, change your frame of mind. And even when your circumstances don't change, watch what God will do. And there's a huge difference between those two things. Huge difference between those two things. And I, I love this because all throughout the book of Acts, we're, we're watching this story unfold of a guy who is relentlessly giving himself to the ways of the kingdom. But as he gives himself to the ways of the kingdom, the circumstances that begin to unfold around his life feel like hell. And there's this moment where he has to begin wrestling with what does it look like to live with heaven's perspective when our circumstances feel like hell? I think this is like so pertinent. I mean, it's so true. It's, it's true for some of you right now. It's gonna be true for all of us at some point. There's gonna be a moment where, where you and your husband try to get pregnant for years and you finally get pregnant and then you lose the baby. Or the job that, that you wanted, that you worked so hard to earn gets taken away from you and cut out from under you by a younger, less qualified person. Or the marriage doesn't come back together. Or the relationship isn't healed. Or the cancer comes back for the third time. And the, the reality is life, as Jesus tells us, is gonna be filled with these moments of trouble. And our confidence in those moments is not ignoring the circumstances, it's elevating above them. 
It's what Ephesians chapter two, verse six says. He says, we've already been seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly realms. And it doesn't mean that the pain and the stuff that we're experiencing around us instantly goes away, but it means that the perspective by which we see those things with instantly changes. And I love this story of Miles Hilton Barber. He said, on my 50th birthday, nothing circumstantially changed, but I never experienced life the same again because my perspective was shifted. And that's what I want us to wrestle with this morning from the book of Acts and the book of Philippians. If you take notes, I'll just give you some of the high points of Acts chapter 20 through 27. And you can go back and read it. Maybe this will help you kind of understand the story. But we've been following through the book of Acts and kind of early on in the story, we meet this guy named Paul who is radically opposed to the ways of Jesus. And then he has this radical life-changing encounter with Jesus and he starts advancing the, this community of faith, the church. He starts churches all over the world and he's living for Jesus in really radical ways. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 20, we're coming into sort of the fourth quarter of Paul's life. And here's what you're gonna notice as you go home and read this this week, because you're gonna go home and read it this week, it's worth reading, is that the reward of Paul's faithful living doesn't feel like much of a reward. In Acts chapter 20 through 27, it is just one hardship after another. He takes this offering to the church in Jerusalem trying to serve the poor, this poor church that he used to persecute. That in and of itself is filled with drama. But he goes to offer uh, this, this gift to the poor and some of his opponents who were religious extremists find out he's in the city. They, they try to beat him and try to kill him. The only reason that Paul's life is spared it's because a Roman centurion, a soldier steps in and puts him into prison. That's when you know your life is bad, that the safest place for you to live is in prison. And so all of a sudden, over the next several years, you just kind of read through Acts chapter 20 through 27, Paul is passed through the judicial and the prison system of Rome. One prison after another, one judge after another. He's beaten, he's abandoned, he's forgotten about, he's discouraged, he's frustrated, and in the midst of all of it, he keeps worshiping Jesus. There's this moment in Acts chapter 26 and 27 where uh, they are literally taking him from one prison to another, trying to get him to Rome. They put him on a ship to send him. And so this is a prison convoy. They're, they're, they're going over the ocean and it says a storm comes up that literally wrecks the ship. All of the prisoners washed to shore, just glad they haven't drowned. As they get to the shore, Paul decides to make a fire to warm up the prisoners. As he's gathering wood to make the fire, he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. Now you just read through it, it's like a terrible movie, just like one bad thing after another. Prisons, beaten, abandoned, prisons, shipwrecked, snake bites, storms, it's over and over and over. The reward for his faithful life doesn't feel like much of a reward. But there's this moment where Paul writes this, this letter to the Philippians and he writes it from prison, prison that's unfolding in Acts chapter 20 through 27, he writes this letter, and I think sometimes when you read the book of Philippians, we read it as you're sitting at a coffee shop drinking a $6 latte, and you just kind of lose it. Or you, you read a verse on a coffee mug or on an Instagram post. It's like, oh, I love Philippians. It's so inspiring. But this is a guy that had gone through all sorts of struggle and setback. His circumstances were terrible. And this is what he writes, Philippians chapter 1. Open it up with me. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know he says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him? Beatings, imprisonments, falsely accused, abandoned, shipwrecks, snake bites, all this stuff. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Jesus. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So there's this moment, here's what I want you to notice in Acts chapter, or Philippians chapter one, 12 through 14, is Paul, in the midst of all of his struggles, he says, hey, let me just give you a little window into my heavenly perspective. What you see as a problem, I see as a possibility. What you see as an obstacle, I see as an opportunity. What should be a setback for the gospel has become a setup for the glory of God to be seen in places it never would have been seen. He says, even those in Caesar's household are beginning to see how amazing Jesus is. And he says, instead of shutting down the movement of God, he says, the circumstances around me are actually allowing Jesus to shine more brightly. Have you ever had like one of these moments in life where it's like just nothing goes your way? Everything falls apart, everything's against you. And Paul says the temptation is to see your circumstances from an earthly perspective and to believe that your earthly circumstances are an obstacle for God's plans for your life. He says, no, they're not an obstacle. It's an opportunity for Jesus to do what only Jesus could do. And this is key for us. Because the reality is that the moments come. The unwanted moments of struggle come, the storms come, the pain comes, the things are gonna come, and the reality is there are gonna be circumstances in your life. Some of you are facing them right now. There are gonna be circumstances in your life that you cannot shift. You can't shift them with enough positive thinking. You can't shift them by hitting the gym just a little bit harder. You can't shift them by surrounding yourself with the right people. And there will be circumstances that will not shift even when you pray really hard about them. And for some of you, that feels like sacrilegious dribble. But here's the truth. You remember when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane? What was he praying that God would do? He was praying that God would change his circumstances. He says, Father, if it's your will, take this circumstance from me. Take this cup from me, but what? Not your will, but or not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. There's this moment where, where even Jesus realized he was facing a circumstance that would not be moved even by prayer. And Jesus understood that sometimes the gospel doesn't take you around the storms, it takes you through them. Sometimes life with Jesus doesn't take you over the struggle, it takes you through it. That sometimes you stand in the fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the hope of the gospel is that in the kingdom of God, you come out unscathed. And Paul says, let me give you a window into my heavenly perspective. And here, here's what I've noticed over the years. Seeing somebody with a heavenly perspective is like so encouraging. I think about my, my mom's cousin. She has a cousin who 25 years ago, when she was 41 years old, her husband died suddenly of brain cancer. Got a brain tumor, super faithful family, had three young kids got diagnosed with brain cancer. Nine months later, he passes away, and all of a sudden, my mom's cousin and her three young kids are left with very little money. They didn't have hardly any money from life insurance, didn't have a very big policy. And she's trying to figure out, she's looking at all of her circumstances, and she goes, she goes okay, how in the world am I gonna make this work out? And she told this story about going to see all of these kind of respected leaders in their church, and she'd sit down with them, and she'd say, hey, here's all my circumstances. Here's what's going on with my kids. Here's a little bit of money that I have. Can we make this work? And she said person after person would look at her circumstances. Then they'd look at her and they'd say, we hate to tell you this, Debbie. There's no way you're gonna make it. There's no way it's gonna work. 
She said, but then she came to one guy in the church and she laid out all the circumstances and he saw how bleak they were. And she said, is there any way to make it work? And she looked at him and, and he said, maybe. <laughs> and she said, you have no idea how encouraging it was to hear the word maybe. She said, all I needed was somebody with a different perspective. I needed somebody that could help me see it from a different angle. And I look at what God's done in her life, it's unbelievable. But here's what I've, I've learned over the years. It's encouraging to see somebody with a heavenly perspective, but it is an entirely different thing for you yourself to have one. It's an entirely different thing for you to be anchored in a heavenly perspective yourself. And here's what I love about the book of Philippians is Paul is pouring his heart out as all of the shipwrecks and the abandonment and the prison as all of that stuff's unfolding. He's pouring his heart out and he doesn't just tell you what he has. He shows you how to get it. He says, I want to show you how to have a heavenly perspective. Flip over just a couple of pages. Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. Are you guys with me? Is this making sense this morning? You track. Okay. Philippians chapter four. We're gonna start in verse four together. And I love this because you get to the end of this letter that Paul's writing from prison and he just begins giving us this perspective on how you get the perspective you want in the circumstances that you're in. Verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all for the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that. He says, when you pray this way, when you walk this way, it doesn't change your circumstances always. What does it do? It changes your heart. Guard your heart, guard your mind. He keeps going. Verse eight, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put these things into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul's gonna say, hey, I don't wanna just give you a window into what I have. I wanna give you an invitation to step into the thing that I have. And the thing that I have is a perspective of heaven that allows me to live with peace in the hell that I'm facing. And I'm just gonna blaze through this really quickly because of time. But there's just several handles that I think he gives us here in Philippians chapter four that makes it really practical. And if you take notes, you can jot them down. If you don't take notes, find a friend that does and they'll help you out later when you forget all this, okay? So here's the, here's the first thing that I noticed in Philippians four is he says, he says, if you wanna have a heavenly perspective in the midst of the hell that you're facing, it starts with this commitment to worship from a place of gratitude. Worship with the place of gratitude. It's what he says in verse four. He says, rejoice. I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. And then he gets down into verse six. He says, when you're praying, when you're letting God know what's going on in your heart, he says, do it with the posture of thanksgiving. Paul says, part of the way you develop a heavenly perspective when your dreams are being crushed, when you're going through the fire, when the water is too deep for you to swim, he says part of the way you develop a heavenly perspective is you make the commitment to worship from a posture of thanksgiving. Now, I want you to, I want you to hear me very clearly on this because as Americans, I think we have totally misunderstood worship. Worship has become a category of music on iTunes. And although worship is something we do when we sing together, worship is so much more than that. Worship is a posture of the heart. Worship is, is a commitment of the time, of the energy, of the affection, of the desire. And although sometimes worship is a response of your feelings, it is so much more than that. 
Paul looks at his friends who are struggling. He's writing this in the midst of his chains, his imprisonment, his beatings, his shipwrecks, his snake bites. And he says, I'm gonna tell you to rejoice. Why? Because worship is not built on your circumstances. It's built on God's character. Worship does not rest on how you feel. It rests on God's faithfulness. And Paul says, my ship has wrecked. I've been bitten by snakes. My pet's heads are falling off. If you watch Dumb and Dumber, you'll get that reference. He said, everything is going bad. Everything is falling apart. He says, yet I praise him. Why? Why? Because Jesus still sits on the throne. And nothing that happens to me here can thwart the plans of God for my life. He says, I worship with thanksgiving. Why? Because God is worthy of praise. I've told this story before, and I'm sorry to repeat it, but it's just impacted me so deeply. I remember years ago just getting a, a, a PhD in worship, not literally, but practically speaking. Uh, my wife and I, we'd gone uh, on a vacation with my in-laws. They took us on a cruise. And we're there on a cruise. I'd never been on a cruise before. And the first night we were there, uh, one of the guys that was kind of waiting on us, he found out that I was a pastor. And uh, he said, hey, I started a church here on the boat. He said, I would love it. Would you come preach for me on the boat this week? Would you like to preach? And in my heart, I'm thinking, that's the last thing I wanna do. I'm on vacation. Like, I don't wanna preach. Like, uh, 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 that's why I'm on vacation. But because I'm from the South and I'm a Christian, I lied to him. I said, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to come preach at your church. I said, when does your church service meet? He said, 11.30 on Thursday night. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I just gotten into? And so he shows up at 11 o'clock, knocks on our door. He takes me down into the lower part of this ship, this little room where all of the workers would come to eat meals. And over the next 30 minutes, about 30 or 40 workers from the ship roll into this little room from all over the world that had been working on the ship together. And I asked him, I said, why do you, why do you get together at 11.30 at night? It's kind of late. He said, well, all of us, six days a week, we work 16-hour shifts. And this is the first time that we're all off. And so we worship on Tuesday and Thursday nights. We worship and then we go back to work at 6 a.m. in the morning. Just the only time we could do church. Remember the band shows up to play. I'm convinced none of them had ever even seen an instrument. You know, they're the, the worst musicians you've ever seen in your life. Uh, not hyperbole, it was horrible. They're, they're, they're playing, they're learning the songs as we're learning them. People are praising their guts out singing to the Lord. And I remember just sitting in that room for two hours as people just praise God. And I thought, man, none of them have circumstances that are worth worshiping. But they understood their worship wasn't built on their circumstances. It's built on God's character. And that maybe they're making, making minimum wage to serve entitled tourists like me. But that Jesus sat on the throne and he had great plans for their life and they knew it. Remember we got to the end of worship, I stood up to preach, I got done preaching, they said, you got another one? I'm like, did you not like that one? They're like, no, we just want more. And so I gave them another one. You guys have never done that, kind of hurts my feelings a little bit. <laughs> I preached another one, and then after I got done preaching, we sat down and they'd all brought food from different parts of the ship and uh, they'd taken it off of the buffets. They sat down, they laid it out, and it's two o'clock in the morning now, and we're eating pizza and french fries and ham cubes and jello, and, and we're talking and confessing sin and praying over one another. And I, I kid you not, I remember leaving thinking, dear Lord Jesus, would you please make Ethos Church as on fire for you as this church on the bottom of a ship? And it, it's a prayer I'm still praying. Because they knew that worship it's not built on the circumstances, but his character. How do you develop heavenly perspective? You worship from a place of thanksgiving. I try to practice this in the mornings before I get out of bed. Most mornings, I'm like, I just literally try to thank God for everything I can think of. And the truth is, there are some days where the list is long, and there's some days where the list feels short, but in all of it, 
Jesus is still on the throne. Paul says you can have a heavenly perspective in the midst of what you're facing. It starts by choosing to worship with gratitude. Second thing I want you to see very quickly out of Philippians chapter four is not just this worship from a place of gratitude. Number two, it's living in the presence of God with honesty. It's living in the presence of God with honesty. I love what he says. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Like, I love this. Paul says, hey, listen, faithfulness is not synonymous with you sweeping all of your pain under the rug. You know, I, I see this so often in church. Somebody's life is falling apart. And when they're not in church, they're just griping and they're sad. And then they get to church, it's like, how's it going? I'm so blessed. So good. Like we, we've learned how to sweep all of the pain, all of the struggle in the rug. And I love what Paul says. Paul says, you're not doing anybody a favor by rushing into the presence of God and sweeping those things under the rug. He says, no, you come into the presence of God with honesty. How do you, do, how do you cultivate a heavenly perspective? This sounds so backwards, it sounds so upside down, but did you know it actually helps you see heaven on, heaven on earth when you begin to, to reflect back to God the pain that you're going through? So Paul says, he says, I wanna know Christ. I wanna share in the power of his resurrection. And I wanna experience the fellowship of his suffering. Paul says there's something about being honest in the presence of God, sharing with God what you're going through, sharing with God what you're feeling that actually builds your friendship with Jesus. And do you know what happens when you become friends with Jesus? You begin to see your circumstances differently. You live with honesty. It's such a struggle, guys. Like Sydney and I, you know, I've said this before, we're trying to teach our, our boys how to follow Jesus. We're trying to teach them how to pray. And so we pray together all the time as a family. And sometimes it goes really well. Sometimes it goes really poorly. And sometimes we'll be sitting there and it's like, hey, you know, Micah, would you say a prayer? And sometimes it's a really heartfelt prayer. And then sometimes he just starts praying what he thinks he's supposed to pray. And we'll be sitting there and he'll start praying. And he's like, he just starts speaking in the King James language all of a sudden. He's like, holy God of righteousness on light and power on high. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? Like, I'm like, where'd you learn how to pray like that? And I go, there's something in our spirit as human beings that is convinced that we can't come to God as we actually are. I never taught my sons that. As human beings, they just know that they're different than God and there's this temptation to fake it in the presence of God. And Paul says, to have a heavenly perspective, you worship from a place of gratitude, but it's not just worshiping from a place of gratitude, it's coming into the presence of God with honesty. You cast your cares on him because he cares for you. You cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He can handle it. You worship with thanksgiving. You live with honesty. Third thing I want you to see very quickly is you choose to feast on the good stuff. You feast on the good stuff. I love this, verse eight. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these kinds of things. Guys, don't you know that the condition of your heart, the condition of your mind, the condition of your perspective is a reflection of what you fix your eyes and your heart on? A lot of us, we wake up in the morning and you have that first cup of coffee as you scroll the headlines from the day before. Oh, is there anything more depressing? <laughs> or some of you fall asleep at night as you scroll Instagram comparing your ordinary moments against somebody else's staged extraordinary moments and you wonder why you feel so worthless about yourself. Or, or you binge watch 
You binge watch TV shows that are, are filled with terrible language and violence and nudity, and you convince all your friends that you watch it for the story. Come on, let me just call it what it is, guys. It's sin. It's sin, and it's shaping the way you see things. It's shaping the way you see things. What you fix your eyes on shapes the perspective of your heart. Just like what you eat shapes your physical body. Remember when I was in college, my freshman year roommate, he was six foot six, weighed about 130 pounds, real skinny guy. When he'd run, he looked like a newborn horse just out of the womb. I mean, just <laughs> gangly and, and um, skinny. It never gained a pound in his life. And I remember we were rooming together our freshman year and every night he had this routine at 11 o'clock. He would go to Walgreens near campus. He would get a personal lasagna. He'd get a personal lasagna, a pint of chocolate milk, and a thing of Swiss cake Little Debbie Rolls. He'd come back to our dorm room. He would eat a personal lasagna, a pint of chocolate milk, Swiss cake Debbie Rolls, and then immediately go to sleep. Like, and this, this was his dietary routine for an entire year. And I remember coming back from summer and we saw some of our friends from high school that hadn't seen him in a while. And they saw his body when we went to the beach and they're like, what happened? Like, 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 what have you been doing all year? I go, if only we could see our souls the way we see our bodies. What you read, what you think about, what you listen to, it greatly affects the way you see the world around you and the circumstances you're facing. And Paul says, I want you to feast on the good stuff. Whatever's praiseworthy, whatever's honorable, whatever's noble, whatever's lovely, think about these kinds of things. How do you get this perspective? You worship with gratitude. You live with honesty. You feast on the good stuff. And last but not least, number four, he says you put it into practice. I love verse nine. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Paul says, in other words, you getting a gym membership doesn't make you any more fit then you showing up and hearing a sermon on heavenly perspective makes you, uh, uh, with a different perspective, he said, you have to practice it. You have to practice it. You have to practice worship. You have to practice honesty. You have to practice community. You have to practice feasting on the good stuff. And he says, and only when these things have been put into practice, here's the reward. Look, look at the end of verse nine with me. He says, when you put it into practice, the God of peace, the God of peace will be with you. If you don't hear me say anything else, I want you to hear me say this. Never one time does Paul, in the midst of all of his struggles, try to sell you the lie that if you just think better thoughts, you'll have better circumstances. And never once does Paul try to sell you the lie that like, if you just kind of pick yourself up from the bootstraps, everything will work out. No, what he says is, if you will walk in faithfulness in the hardest moments of your life, he says, here's what you'll discover is that the God of peace is with you. Do you know what the reward is for this kind of perspective? It's not new circumstances, the reward is God. That's the reward, God is the reward. It's what Jesus says to the disciples when they're on the boat in the middle of the storm, they're all scared to death that they're gonna drown. Jesus stands up and he calms the storm that they're in and then he turns to them and he calms the storm that's in them. And Jesus understood that sometimes the fiercest storms are not the storms we're in, they're the storms that are inside of us. The storms that are waging war, that are convincing us that we're not a child of God, that our sin can't be forgiven, that God's purposes for you are lying dormant, that your circumstances can't be overcome. There's the storms within that are brewing that keep you from living into the storms or into the purposes that God's given for your life. 
And Jesus stands up and he deals with the storm outside the boat, then he deals with them. It's what he says in John chapter 14, verse 27, as he's walking to the cross, as he's walking to the garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross, he looks at his disciples and he says, the peace that I have is the peace that I wanna give you. I won't take it away, don't be afraid. I love Jesus has that conversation about peace, guys. Listen to this. He has the conversation of peace, not when they're sitting on a beach, drinking mimosas, watching their grandkids play in the surf. He has the conversation about peace when he's getting ready to face the thing that all of us wanna run away from. And he says, I wanna give you the kind of peace, I wanna give you the kind of perspective that can't be touched. Even when everything the world tells you you need to be happy has been taken away. And he says, and when you can learn to be happy there, he says, well, watch what God will do. Where do you need a new perspective? Where do you need God to supernaturally shift something in you? This morning, before we take communion, I'm gonna invite you here in just a second to get in groups of one or two or three people and just take a moment. And Nicole, you can go ahead and throw the question up on the screen. Here's a question for you. Is in what part or parts of your life do you need Jesus to help you live with a heavenly perspective? In what part or parts of your life do you need Jesus to help you right now live with a heavenly perspective? Maybe there's a place of pain, confusion, frustration, sorrow. Maybe it's somebody else in your life that needs it that you need to pray for. But here in just a moment, get with somebody, take some time to answer this question, and then spend a few moments um, praying together, and then I'll get up and send us to communion. Let me pray over you, and then we'll spend some time discussing. Father, I love you. I thank you that what you give us in this life is far greater than any circumstances we'll face. God, this morning, would you illuminate the places where our perspective needs to be shifted and would you yourself become our peace? Would you guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we begin to pray and petition you in the presence of one another and most importantly, in the presence of you uh, this morning, would you give us what you tell us you'd give us in this passage? In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks, amen.